When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, the jockeying is starting to be the next president of the European Central Bank. The ECB, if you sort of look ahead, will be in charge of gradually withdrawing the stimulus that has been introduced over the past five or six years. And that's a really very big task. And why the post-World Cup football transfer market is unusually quiet. One of the things that's really changed in the last four years has been the amount to which clubs have really paid attention to big data. They're hiring more and more analysts, and so they're paying more attention to number crunching. First, the WTO. In April, Donald Trump called the organisation unfair and said that it gave China tremendous perks and advantages. And on Monday, Donald Tusk, the European Council's president, said that Europe should form a common front with China against US trade tariffs as part of a broader rethink about how the WTO works. I'm joined in the line by Samaya Keynes, our US economics editor in Washington. Is the world trading system under attack, Samaya? I think it is. I think essentially what we've seen is that the Trump administration is unhappy with how the rules work, how the system is working for America. And one interpretation of all of the Trump administration's trade policy actions is that it's essentially trying to reshape the rules. It's trying to reshape the World Trade Organization so that it better serves its interests. It's under attack on a number of different fronts, isn't it, from different people. What are the sort of broad outlines of the various issues that people have with the WTO? The Trump administration, I think, is engaged in a three-pronged attack of the WTO or the global rules-based system of trade. The first idea that's under attack is this idea that countries should stick to the rules and they shouldn't just randomly raise tariffs in order to essentially apply leverage to other countries and bully them into changing their behavior or lowering their tariffs. So we've seen the Trump administration put up tariffs on steel and aluminium in theory in the name of national security. But I think that there's probably something else going on there. It looks like it might be connected to a renegotiated North American free trade agreement, or perhaps there might be some kind of quest to get the European Union to lower its tariffs. So that's the first attack. The second attack uh, is this idea that at the moment there is a system that the WTO has of resolving its trade disputes. And the Americans are in the process of blocking the appointments of judges to the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. And obviously, if it blocks so many judges that they can't hear cases, then the whole system will get gummed up and countries essentially might start taking matters into their own hands. The third attack is the American attack on China. So we've seen tariffs go into effect on $34 billion worth of American imports from China. There are more in the works. And here, you know, the big accusation is that the Americans haven't specified what they want. 
But it does look like there are others who are trying to essentially work out what the Americans want, also talk to the Americans about what they want. And so there's a process underway of, of thinking about how to remake the rules of the World Trade Organization so that they could fit something that the Americans might like a bit better. And that's largely about China, isn't it? I mean, America's not the only place that's frustrated with how China fits into this rules-based order. Yes, exactly. And so essentially what the European Union, Japan, what they're trying to do is they're trying to identify areas where actually they're upset about Chinese trade practices, where they're frustrated that the rules haven't given them the leeway that they want in order to defend themselves against Chinese trade practices. So they're essentially trying to say, okay, well, we've got this very, very aggressive American government in power. Is there any way that we could essentially avoid wasting this crisis? This all sounds terribly risky, though. I mean, this is an architecture that, though it's not perfect, it has endured for some decades. And we are looking at a simultaneous attempt to unpick it in lots of different ways. Is there a way through, really? I wouldn't say I'm particularly optimistic. I think you can carve out some kind of best case scenario where perhaps the EU, Japan and America negotiate some kind of new set of rules. They take them to China. China somehow signs up because it wants a stable global trading system and the worst tensions get resolved. You could see that happening, but there are just so many ways in which the plan could all go wrong. What if Donald Trump puts tariffs on European and Japanese cars? Are they then able to cooperate with him? What if this new set of rules they negotiate just doesn't really go far enough to tackling the problems that the Americans have with the Chinese system? You know, philosophically, it's really unclear whether the perfect set of rules exists. So all in all, I'd say that though there is a glimmer of hope, it's probably best to be fairly realistic about the prospects of this plan succeeding. Samaya Keynes, thank you. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. The European Central Bank plays an incredibly important part in the economy of the Eurozone. The ECB boss at the moment is Mario Draghi and his eight-year term as president comes to an end next October. To find out a bit more about the potential replacements and what they could bring to the role, I'm joined by Rachna Shanbog, our European economics correspondent. Rachna, why does it matter who's the boss of the ECB? Well, Helen, all you need to do is go back to 2012 when the European sovereign debt crisis was at its worst and um, Mario Draghi, with one speech significantly calmed market nerves. He said that the ECB would do whatever it took to preserve the euro. And I think that's really all the evidence you need, that one person in charge of the central bank can make a big difference. The next president of the ECB, if you sort of look ahead, will be in charge of gradually withdrawing the stimulus that has been introduced over the past five or six years. And that's a really very big task. And do we have any idea who's lining themselves up and looking for this job? Well, with about 15 months to go until Mario Draghi ends his term, it's still very early days. But nevertheless, some names are starting to be talked about. One of them is Jens Weidmann, who is currently the head of the German central bank, the Bundesbank. There's a perception that it might be Germany's turn because although it's the largest economy in the euro area, the most populous country, it hasn't so far had a head of the ECB. 
Now, he's clearly technically very qualified, but there might be some objections from other sort of more southern states in the in the euro area because he's got very hardline views on ECB policy. But he's also a very divisive candidate, particularly amongst the southern European states, because he's very often been in the dissenting minority when it's come to votes on monetary stimulus. So it's not clear really whether he would actually get the go ahead or not. The decision will need to be made in sort of horse trading between um, the 19 member states of the euro. So it might well come down to how much Angela Merkel really wants to push him as a candidate. That would be a big change, a big departure, wouldn't it, for the ECB to be taking such a hard line role and backing so much Germany's vision of the euro as something that needs the whole of the eurozone to become German effectively. Absolutely. It would be a very big change. And it could start to make financial market participants a little bit nervous, especially given political situation in, in Italy. So I'm not entirely sure if he's the most likely candidate at this point. It might be instead that um, somebody else from some of the, the northern economies, the smaller northern countries in the eurozone, might get it instead. So people are also talking about the governor of the Finnish central bank, Erki Liikanen, as well as the head of the Dutch national bank, Klaas Knot. I presume these are people who would take a similar sort of sound money, you know, low debt, sort out your economy yourself, not massive transfers between the various eurozone countries, but perhaps less divisive. I think that's right. Um, certainly, Erki Likonen has been viewed as helping sort of reach consensus and build a consensus and certainly isn't regarded as being um, as controversial a character as Jens Weidmann. So is this one of these European roles that gets decided you know, largely on nationality and largely behind closed doors and in the end they don't necessarily end up with someone terribly good? Well, there's a lot of considerations that go into it. You're right, it comes down to nationality. We also have the European parliamentary elections next year. So there's a chance that the the next head of the ECB will be decided alongside sort of the horse trading around who's going to be the president of the European Commission or the, the head of the European Council. If we look back to Mr Draghi's appointment nearly eight years ago, the decision was made to go with a, with an Italian candidate, even though there was already a Portuguese vice presidential candidate in place. So two southerners at the head of the ECB, if you like. And, and that was perhaps because Mr Draghi was the best candidate. And the hope is that this time as well, rather than going with a sort of compromise that isn't technically the best candidate, that the prime ministers and presidents will make the same decision. As the date gets closer, if we don't have a sort of a consensus candidate that people are coalescing around, does that mean that the markets start to get worried about the euro again? I think it depends on who's being talked about as possible runners at that point. Um, and also what's happening with the eurozone more broadly. I mean, if the Italian political situation and, you know, the economic policy in Italy is sort of not a concern for market participants, then they might not be so worried about who's in charge of the ECB. But I think it, it really all depends on what happens over the next year to 15 months. Thanks, Rachina. What are your thoughts on the next president for the ECB or on the future of the World Trade Organization? Send us an email at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, after the thrilling conclusion to the Men's World Cup in Russia, we turn our attention to the football transfer market. Often after an international tournament, player prices see a rise following standout performances. But this year, the market is unusually quiet. To discuss why this is, I'm joined in the studio by James Tozer, who's written about this for this week's Economist. James, who's really looking like they might get poached? Anyone at all? 
One of the biggest names that's being linked with the move is Kylian Mbappe, who was France's striker, who by far their most dangerous threat during the tournament, and it looks like Real Madrid might try and get him. But there's kind of an outside chance of them doing so. His club, Paris Saint-Germain, is very rich and probably quite reluctant to let go of him. Otherwise, it's looking fairly quiet. There are a couple of names who've had reasonably good tournaments who might get pinched. Alexander Golovin of Russia looks like he might get a move to Chelsea, but by and large, there's not as much going on this year as there has been in previous years. So in previous years, this chance to perform on the world stage has meant that the stars really got poached at enormously high prices afterwards. Why was that? Well, as you say, it's the biggest stage in football. And I think clubs look at it and see players who perform well and think they must have a sort of big game mentality. They really step up when it matters. And in fact, most of the data suggests that's sort of a myth that players who do well in big games in the past tend to do no better than, than others in the future. It's, it's not a particularly good predictor of how good a player you are. It, generally, you want to look at as big a sample as possible and, and see how they perform. And when data analysts look at this, they find that a player's form at his club in the previous season is a very good predictor of how well he will play at his next club if he transfers. How he does at the World Cup actually has very little extra impact. So it's more noise than signal, really. But clubs tend to, to overpay for it. And actually, a lot of the players who, who have been transferred, the big example from last time was James Rodriguez of Colombia, who moved to Real Madrid for about twice as much as he was worth. Uh, he was disappointing, played less than half the time and got loaned out to Bayern Munich. So it's, it's not the best indicator of, of who the, the wisest acquisition might be. The lack of activity after this World Cup, does that suggest that clubs are wising up? Yes, I think so. One of the things that's really changed in the last four years has been the amount or the extent to which clubs have really paid attention to big data. They're hiring more and more analysts. A lot of people are moving into football from sort of the financial industry. And so they're paying more attention to number crunching. And I think they're starting to spot where there might be inefficiencies in the market and how to avoid them. I mean, football used to be, the transfer market used to be absolutely crazy. Clubs would sometimes buy players just on hearsay or recommendation. There was one very funny example of Southampton signing a player who claimed to be the cousin of an African star, played a game and turned out to be absolutely terrible and have never had a professional contract in his life. The market today is much more, they do much more in-depth research. They'll be watching players for several years before they decide to buy them. It's a bit sad, really, though. I mean, it used to be a bit like stepping up on the big night when, you know, when the lead in a show had broken a leg or something and the understudy wows the world. Has that romance gone? I guess it depends a little bit. For the clubs, probably, because they spend so much time and energy in, in scouting out every single possible player, they, they already know who, who the talented understudies are. But for the fans, I think, I think it's still there because you still get, you know, the same number, perhaps even more unlikely names breaking through from Africa and South America and Asia who the fans may not have heard of but but the clubs are already aware of so I, I don't think the romance from a sort of spectating perspective has gone necessarily. Great, thanks very much James and that's all for this edition of Money Talks don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com I'm Helen Joyce in London, this is The Economist Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 